National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Democrats flip on Israel and the Biden administration focuses on Islamophobia. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and Catholic Charities. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we are now encountering in full force the Democrat uh, retreat from the three or four week stalwart defense of Israel and its uh, right, nay, its obligation to destroy Hamas. We had Joe Biden answering a, a, a heckler by saying, yeah, he wants a pause in Israel's war to get in humanitarian aid. And then you had Chris Murphy, among others. But Chris Mur- Murphy, of course, the senator from Connecticut, putting out a statement last night. You know, Hamas's uh, Israel can defend itself and Hamas's bil- ability to carry out an attack like this ever again must be eliminated. But, but, but this is going too far. There are way too many civilian casualties. It's disproportionate and Israel has to stop. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, whenever grassroots Democrats start getting violent in the street, elected Democrats start to follow their politics. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, I say that in a somewhat joking way, but I'm not really joking. I mean, this is uh, an established pattern we saw back in 2020, uh, and we're seeing it now with this explosion of, um, you know, harassing and destructive uh, pro-Hamas-style activism on the far left, and it is freaking people out. And it's it's, M- it's actually freak, freaking out elected Democrats. You mean freaking out elected Democrats? It's freaking out elected Democrats that uh, that they're ultra-progressive Muslim staffers who are punching above their weight in, as far as their influence are calling them out or threatening to organize or resign or put out statements. I think it's... They're freaking themselves out that somehow Joe Biden is going to lose Michigan because of Dearborn, that Muslim voters will abandon him in Dearborn. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, a percentage of voters that is even negligible. I mean, we're talking about, you know, maybe a few score thousand voters um, in Michigan. It's possible for Michigan to be that close, but you are you really going to assume that all Muslims in Michigan are going to vote against Joe Biden and for Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? I wouldn't bet on that. Um, this is uh, totally bizarre. It is, uh, you know, also a reflection of the hive mind of of liberal opinion, which Hamas has been able to game with these utterly untrustworthy statistics about casualties mm-hmm. in Gaza, right? I mean, people should have it in their minds already that when the story of the hospital being bombed happened, the Gaza Health Ministry immediately told the press, oh yeah, 500 casualties. And the press ran with it. So the current casualty cases that you're seeing, you know, you have no ability to trust them. And uh, again, 
there's also the the difficulty of you know the raw casualty count ends up favoring if you if you look at it that way it ends up favoring uh, if, if that's the morality you use to try to judge this pure utilitarianism, you are favoring the terrorists because the terrorists are have militarily ineffective weapons and tactics, and then they hide among civilians. So then when a militarily effective force comes in to begin rooting them out, there is a lot of collateral damage, and it is awful, and it is regrettable. It is also the terrorists' fault that it is happening. Um, so, uh, Democrats have not been able to, uh, you know, uh, keep it up and it's be, and I'm afraid to say it's too, it's, it's their brain poisoning on intersectionality, right? I mean, they, they just cannot get away from the view that Israel is a somehow colonial, that the right to return somehow makes it an apartheid state. Mm -hmm. It's a Western state fundamentally. And so it must be in a position of oppressing uh, its, its uh, non-Western neighbors and it's, you know, it's, it's uh, not being victimized by Russia, which, you know, is the kind of font of evil in the world. Um, so they can't fundamentally sustain support for it. Um, yeah, there was it, a, an amusing tweet from Peter Beinart, former editor of the, the, the New Republic, he used to be, uh, a Zionist, or at least edit a Zionist publication, and has has flipped on on Israel over the last decade or so about Tanahisi Coates, the statement he made, Coates on democracy now, where he said, you know, th this isn't even a complicated issue. You know, the the, the Palestinians are, are so repressed and so wronged, and and Beinhart is like, wow, he's like Martin Luther King speaking out about Vietnam, where he takes his domestic premises and applies them to a, a foreign conflict in a way that's really risky and might alienate kind of people he's trying to reach. Like, whoa, are you kidding? What? Of course he's going to take this kind of woke, racialized position on Gaza, because that's his worldview. And that's what his audience wants. That's what it loves. There's no risk there at all. It doesn't mean that Coates isn't sincere. I think, unfortunately, he is. But, Maddie, to these, these casualty counts, there's, there's been a little bit of more of a note of skepticism about them after they got uh, wrong-footed in a highly embarrassing way on the hospital attack. The New York Times began saying the, the Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza, but still, these figures—they're retailed down to the the single digit, as 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 though that it it just speaks to the credibility they're given. Even if there's that little note of oh, you know, this is Hamas telling us. It's like no, but they're telling us they're you know four thousand seven hundred and fifty-two casualties so far in the war, and there's no doubt it's a punishing campaign from from the air. There's a, they've they've hit a bunch of of targets, but no one knows what the casualty count is. I think that's exactly right. No one knows what the casualty count is. And there's a, a, I think, a journalistic default that any fact is better than no fact. And as long as you qualify it by saying, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry, that's better than nothing. But actually, it's not better than nothing because it creates an impression. People skim reading their morning newspapers see 8,000, 9,000 casualties and they don't necessarily take in that qualification in the same way. I was very struck by President Biden's remark that there should be a, a pause, this idea of a humanitarian pause, you know, a, a rose by any other name, smells as sweet, uh, pretty much a ceasefire in, in, in other language. But of course, he, he is, the UN definition of a pause is different in that it's supposed to be temporary, it's supposed to be for humanitarian purposes, um, and reserved to a specific geographic area. But there's there's really two problems with, the, with this. The first is that according to the UN, this requires the agreement of, of all relevant parties. So it requires the agreement of Hamas. How are you going to get Hamas to play ball? This is not going to be like World War One when on Christmas Day, the, uh, the the Germans and and the the French put down their their weapons and uh, decided to you know have a nice Christmas together. That there, there's no commonality. There's no common ground here. Uh, so that's that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, I think we have to kind of have a bit of humility here in accepting that Israel is really best positioned to evaluate um, its actions against its war aims. And 
you know, like it doesn't really need the US to be telling them where and when to take pauses. Israel has cooperated with the US and with the international community in, insofar as, it, as it's able to in terms of securing humanitarian aid and in, in terms of um, working with, with Egypt to, to get people out of Gaza. But beyond that, I just I just don't really think it's really our place to to be telling them when to when to stop uh, in their war aims. So, Charlie, it, it was pretty much the consensus among uh, every respectable person in, in politics, even from a lot of uh, Democrats, most Democrats, that Israel had to defeat Hamas in reaction to this horrific attack. But clearly no one really thought through what that meant. You know, that wasn't going to be a, a, a three-week venture. You know, you're not going to be able to route a terror group that is deeply ingrained in this heavily urban environment has spent years building this infrastructure of, of tunnels and and all the rest of it it's it's meant to be extremely difficult to root out but they none of them seemed a lot of the Democrats don't seem to have thought through that this this would be long and extremely um, difficult and an, an example of the dilemma that Israel faces there was this top operator that Israel says they took out in a refugee camp and you know, uh, a uh, a bombing that that killed and, and injured a lot of other people. So, what do you do? You have you have this chance to to take that out this guy. Presumably, when you have this intelligence, it's it's fleeting, right? They're they're moving around. Do you do it or not? You know, he, he's a guy who um, played a lead role in this pogrom that was carried out on your own territory. All all these unspeakable things that we've talked about the last couple weeks happening in large part because of this guy do you hit him or not and if you don't hit him because you're 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 too worried there'll be the civilian casualties it's not as though he's going to go in the open desert you know it's not as though he's going to go in a uh, a military division that's going to line up in in north gaza and and fight you in the open this is the only way you're going to get him and it's a, a big obviously point of how hamas fights there's some hamas official who was on camera uh, a week or so ago saying, you know, we're going to fight Israel and it's the duty of civilians to die in this fight, basically. And that's a, an immoral and, and cynical way to look at it. Unfortunately, as we've seen in the reaction from Chris Murphy and others, it's effective. It's, it's potentially more effective in staying Israel's hand than anything that Hamas can do directly militarily to resist Israel. So do you think that it's that Democrats didn't think this through? Or do you think it's that they've quickly caved to the dissenters? Because I think it's the latter. The vast majority of people in Washington, D.C. are professional politicians who are quite aware of the geopolitical situation, who have experience dealing with, or at least being briefed on, the behavior of organizations such as Hamas or Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and who early on, perhaps because of that, recognized the need to destroy Hamas. I don't think this shift is the product of naivety or of new information. I think it's the product of fear of the progressive wing of the party and that wing's overwhelming power within elite institutions and the democratic coalition. My to, to define define you and to define what's what's good and just, allegedly. Right. Michael and, and described it as liberal opinion. I don't want to split hairs, but I think it's not liberal. I think it's progressive opinion. Liberals, self-described liberals, center-left Americans have been good on this. Progressives have not. And those who sit somewhere between the two or are emissaries of the broader left have found themselves on the end of the words and accusations that they normally throw at other people. I think we shouldn't underestimate how uncomfortable that must make them feel. Mm -hmm. We hear it all the time on the right. We say we want lower tax rates or a change in the regulations of sugar. And they say, 
you're a genocidal maniac, you're a racist, you hate brown people, you're a colonial apologist. That's not the position that Chris Murphy usually finds himself in. That's not the position that Joe Biden's staffers usually find themselves in. They go and stand next to their friends in the playground of their kid's school, and they all agree how virtuous they are. But at the moment, they're being told that they have been too enthusiastic in the defense of this tyranny (laughs) that is supposedly Israel. I think that's why we have seen the shift. I also think it's a mistake. I'm told that this is in part the product of politics. But as I wrote yesterday, if it is, it's the product of bad politics. Progressives may have a great deal of power, but they are not in touch with the American public on this. The American public thinks that Joe Biden either has done the right amount to help Israel or not enough, 78 to 22. Only 22% of the American public thinks that Joe Biden is too supportive of Israel. And that number is not very different Among Democrats, only 28% of Democrats think that Joe Biden has done too much to help Israel, but not the ones that matter, not the ones who run the newspapers, not the ones who run the progressive organizations, not the ones who run the fundraising institutions, not the ones who are loudest on social media, not the ones who staff the White House and the DNC and Senate offices. And as we saw with that bizarrely unsigned open letter, the people who run the offices in the house. That's my take on this. It's not about Mm -hmm. 30, 60,000 people in Michigan. Although if it were, it's worth saying that the president of the United States would have a responsibility to put what is right over what those people are asking him to do, which in effect is to sympathize with Hamas. That is not something a US president should or can be asked to fulfill. But this isn't going to change because... The Democratic Party's center of gravity, where all of its energy is, is the part of the country, the small part of the country, that dislikes Israel and wants a ceasefire. And so you're going to see the party fall into line with it, even if it ends up hurting it at the ballot box, which I suggest it will. Yeah, so Charlie, you're you're outlining the dynamic that we've seen on the the left for a very long time. It's one reason kind of the, the old school, like Arthur Schlesinger, reasonable kind of liberals buckled to the new left in academia and other places in the late 60s and the, the early 70s. They couldn't stand to be called, you know, the pigs and the Well, the transgender the movement. The entire transgender mm-hmm. movement is the product of exactly this dynamic, where pretty much everyone, including, it seems, half of Democrats, think this is sheer lunacy, and yet the president can't help but put out statements all the time on Twitter or back the right. most inter- absurd, pride day. Uh, innovative medical procedures. It's why you see Elizabeth Warren tweeting out that black trans folks are the backbone of our entire history. It's because this is small clique. So MBD, extra question to you. There will be a humanitarian pause in the Gaza war sometime soon. Yes or no? No. Maddie. No, I think Israel's made clear that they intend to disregard this uh, unsolicited advice. Charlie? No, and one reason for that is that Americans sometimes overestimate the extent to which they are the author of all that happens in the world. Israel has a rule that it established early on in its modern existence, which is that it will take care of itself and it will take help where it can get it, but ultimately it will use its own people and its own money and its own agency uh, to protect itself. And I don't think that Israel is going to be responsive to the same progressive pressures that the Biden administration and many in the Senate are. It actually wouldn't shock me if there is some kind of pause just to take some sort of the pressure off, not you know, not, not a ceasefire. <laughs> that would be obviously totally intolerable, but I, I just wonder if Israel is going to be totally, um, be able to totally resist uh, saying, you know, okay, for 18 hours or whatever, here's your pause so you can bring in more humanitarian materials. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor advised fund, her request was denied. Why? 
because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and gas, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction, avoid capital gains tax, and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a lifetime income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month and charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org, waterstone.org. Check it out. So, Maddie, I have once more proven much, much too naive when Corrine Jean-Pierre, of course, the White House press secretary, a week or so ago read a statement about Islamophobia in response to an anti-Semitism question. I was like, ah, you know, that, that's just, she's not very good at her job. That's just total incompetence. She does maintain, apparently, that she she, she misheard the question. But this clearly now was a, a major um, initiative they were going to undertake. Kamala, this is how serious they take it. Kamala Harris is now in charge of fighting Islamophobia in this country. Of course, no one wants uh, in any... Uh, uh, harassment or anything worse to be visited upon our our Muslim friends and Muslim fellow citizens, but the idea that this is is what you're you're talking about, and that somehow you cannot talk about anti-Semitism without immediately also joining it with this a lot Islamophobia, which thank God has been you know a phantom uh, phenomenon for for the most part during this historic bout of anti-Semitism is quite extraordinary. It's extraordinary, and I think if for Jews, it's it's particularly insulting. Um, of course, as you mentioned, there is such a thing as anti-Muslim bigotry, in the same way that there's anti-Christian bigotry. Um, there have been uh, pers- there's been the persecution of of Muslims for religious reasons, in the same way that there has been and continues to be uh, persecution of Christians for religious reasons, but. At its core, Islam is a set of ideas similar to Christianity, and it should not be immune for, from criticism in the same way that Christianity shouldn't be immune from criticism. And I think Islamophobia is a cynical attempt to collapse these types of distinctions to make all forms of criticism of Islam um, bigoted. I mean, that's that's really the, the attempt here. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that... It's, it's certainly been used a lot in Europe to shut down discussion about important conversations about uh, mass immigration, for example. Um, and it's being used here as a sort of diversion technique to get away from um, a very serious, sinister, historic problem of anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is sort of unique in, in the sense that Throughout history, Jews have been hated, always under different pretexts, but specifically hated uh, as Jews, as for for their right to exist collectively as Jews with the same rights as everybody else. That's what's been under attack, and it's really important that we're able to treat it as as a unique problem in all the ways that it's been historically manifest. And I think that the the Islamophobia uh, discussion. Is is very cynical. I, I think there's a there is a definition I saw, which maybe goes a little further than I would. But um, Sam Harris, I think, has endorsed the de- the definition of Islamophobia as a word created by fascists and used by cowards to manipulate morons. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's there is something in that, unfortunately. Yeah. So Charlie, how do you diagnose this one? Is it the same diagnosis that you're? Um, elucidating in the first segment that this is just a, a play to the, the people they're intimidated by because they assume they have all the moral power who are on campus and in the streets. Because you think like anti-Semitism, you know, it's a form of hatred. It's a form of ethnic hatred. It's a form of uh, hatred that has infected the right historically still to this day. You know, among a fringe, Joe Biden says he ran for president supposedly because of the the hideous tiki torch marchers in Charlottesville. So you would think, in theory, they'd be perfectly comfortable lambasting 
anti-Semitism. And, and early on after this, they, they were actually. Corinne Jean-Pierre gave a, a great statement pushing back on some, some of the stuff the squad said. But here you go. They, they got to mention Islamophobia in the same breath. I think it's partly driven by those dynamics. I also think that it demonstrates the power of bad ideological frameworks. This is a habit. This is what you do when you filter the entire world through decolonialist thinking. The Jews, as we have now seen, cannot be the victims. And that's why we have witnessed this peculiar response to what happened in Israel, where we haven't seen this sort of outpouring that we got after George Floyd was killed, where all of the rules that were exercised for 10 years on college campuses and elsewhere, all of the definitions of safety and hate speech and belonging and inclusion went out of the window because they weren't designed to accommodate Israel or Jewish people. I think that what we have seen in the White House is an outgrowth of a worldview that holds that the problem has to be, as Biden put it, Islamophobia and other hatreds. Because it's those people who are at the bottom of the hierarchy and who are obliged to be the victims. There was a video, I don't know which university it was, of a professor who was asked point blank, do you condemn the terrorism committed by Hamas? Not do you condemn the Palestinian people? Not do you support Israel? Nothing as attenuated as that. The question was, do you condemn the terrorism perpetrated by Hamas? And she said it's not a yes or no question. You can only say that out loud. You can only think that. You can only go there when your head has been filled with a whole bunch of preposterous ideological frameworks that you mistake for sophistication. That is zealotry. That is why otherwise good people do bad things. George Orwell said that there are some ideas so stupid that only academics can believe them, and that is one of them. I think that the White House and a broader progressive movement have been infected by a lot of these ideas. They prevent them from seeing the world as they are. They prevent them from noticing that the problem at the moment is anti-Semitism. And no, it's not limited entirely to the left, although that is where it is most acute right now. I think it was the director of the FBI who testified in front of Congress in the last week that Jews are 2% of the population, but the, the target of 60, 65% of hate crimes... This isn't some abstract conception. This isn't just my sense of it or intuition. Quite clearly, the stats show the problem is anti-Semitism. But it can't be. It can't be. Because all of this nonsense, this scaffolding, this apparatus that we've spent 40 years in academia building up and that has really driven very deep into the left is there resisting it. And so instead of saying we're going to look very seriously at anti-Semitism, because clearly that's the problem du jour, the vice president of the United States has been tasked with dealing with Islamophobia because that's the only answer they can get out of the machine they've built. So MBD, big, big question to you. So what accounts in your mind for the hatred for the Jews, which is one of the most uh, pervasive and enduring phenomenons in human history, right? And it, it, it's across all sorts of societies, backwards, advanced. You know, you look at the Ivy League colleges, you know, different, different forms, but when it was dominated by this WASP elite that, that has now been totally dethroned and basically doesn't exist any, anymore, shot through with anti-Semitism, now dominated by a woke elite that hates the old WASP elite, shot through or, or at least um, tolerant of uh, blatant anti-Semitic displays. So w what accounts for this? Well, I've always thought that anti-Semitism is a kind of 
brain disease because it's so it manifests itself in you know a million contradictions, which is Jews are too capitalist, no, they're too communist, they're too clannish, no, they're too cosmopolitan, um, they're too rooted in uh, the Levant Levantine mythology, they're too rootless, they're too modern. Um, you know, Jews are hated for, uh, you know, being black, being white. Um, they are, uh, so it, it begs for some kind of other explanation. I mean, obviously, you know, there are, there are some theories, you know, uh, Amy Chu has put forward this idea of the market dominant minorities, right? That, that in certain, uh, for whatever mm -hmm. reason, certain like cultures, the Ch Ch Chinese communities and yes. certain places in Asia. Yeah, there the, there are other examples besides Jews, uh, but Jews are one of them of groups that, um, uh, for whatever reason, their their cultural uh, formation and the cultural arrangements around them, they become uh, wealthier than everyone else around them, or tend to become wealthier. And then this inspires real hatred, jealousy, and conspiracy theories. Uh, I think that that is part of it. Um, obviously, there are, are you know roots of there are there's all sorts of forms of anti-Semitism, whether it's Christian anti-Semitism. There's a kind of um, you know liberal anti-Semitism, which which hates Jews for their uh, you know for the rootedness of their religion and the particularity. Of their culture um but i honestly believe that there is some kind of spiritual or mystical element in it um because it is so widespread it is so feverish it descends on societies like um you know like a kind of madness as if it were in, in itself a kind of sign of god's judgment and chastisement um you know i i i Suppose I suspect, and I, I wrote on the corner this week. I suspect that the persistence of anti-Semitism is a kind of testimony to the truth of the Old Testament that uh, Jews were God's chosen people, and there is some kind of uh, I don't know residue of hatred and jealousy uh, on all other peoples um, because of this privilege given to them. Uh, I suspect I suspect that's the that's the case. Um, I'm still a Christian. But there is something so mad about the fact that uh, th these incredible ironies, right? Like um, the German Green Minister just this week gave this very eloquent speech about the horrendous rise of anti-Semitism in Germany presently and how Germany had a special historical duty to uh, protect Israel and Germany had a special historical duty to make itself safe for Jews in Germany that it was currently failing at. And I thought that, you know, there's no greater sign of, the, of this, this kind of irony or, or chastisement or the folly of man that Germany is now basically saying, well, we have a choice before us, which is we either allow popular anti-Semitism to flourish to the point that Jews are hiding and fearful of their lives in Germany, or we pursue an aggressive policy of religious and ethnic cleansing of the German people because this anti-Semitism is mostly imported from the Islamic world, from Turkey and from other uh, uh, groups of uh, Muslims who have moved into Germany and become residents, some citizens, but some illegal. Um, you know that is an that is the cruelest irony I can imagine inflicting on Germany, uh, and it's a cruel irony to inflict on every other European country that has had uh, its history of of pogroms and persecutions. Uh, that now we're seeing this this thing that we said that the whole culture seemed to be crying out and forming every young person through its popular culture. Never again. Never again. Never again. Well, we're seeing it again. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing people draw stars of David on Jewish shops. We're seeing the harassment of Jews in the street. We've been seeing it in New York City for years. Visible Jews have been, you know, subjected to random violence. Um, it, it It is, I mean, if this isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what is.
So, Maddie, I ask a question to you. We are passing some sort of um, event horizon where anti-Semitism, in effect, will is and will become more acceptable in elite culture, or is that overstating it? Um, I mean, I think we're already there. I don't. I don't know if it's acceptable broadly, but it's certainly being overlooked in a way that. As Charlie's uh, pointed out, we they would not overlook other other forms of bigotry, and indeed they do not um, perceived or or real. Um, so yeah, I think things are are in pretty bad shape. Charlie, no, I think this goes in waves. Sometimes those waves are caused by some force, as they have been here. I think we will see a push against it. And I think that push will win, not that it will eradicate it forever. And I think there will be a handful of people in this country who will have found themselves on the wrong side of this and who will pay a certain price for it. Because as I say, while anti-Semitism is clearly a problem, it's not the majority position in the United States. Americans are not anti-Semites by and large. A supermajority of them resists this. And I think that makes the weakness on it that we're seeing even more baffling and cowardly. MBD. Um, I think it, I think this sort of it's going. We are going to see it become more common and it be whitewashed through this anti-Zionism, this idea that. Israel is an apartheid state because the right of return applies only to Jews. Um, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of weird chauvinism in Europe and in some and in progressive quarters in America that somehow Europe learned the lesson of the Holocaust better than the Jews. That like and that in Europe it's it's you know. Uh, what we need is fundamentalist non-discrimination and that Jews therefore are committing the worst sin by responding to their discrimination by discriminating. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think, I think anti-Zionism will be a, a kind of laundromat for, uh, creeping anti-Semitism to grow. Yeah. I, th I think saying we've passed an event horizon overstates it, but there's clearly more space for a, a kind of anti-Semitism to be tolerated so long as it is joined to this woke intersectional, inter intersectional agenda, this identity politics, de decolonization, colonization agenda. But if it's, if it's, anti-Semitism that's too frankly open or it's anti-Semitism on the right, it will still very strongly be uh, condemned. And the people who are kind of tolerating this woke version of it will, will also deny that they are, they are in any way uh, giving space for anti-Semitism. So it's distressing. It's bad. But I think Event Horizon overstates it. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. Giving the gift to real estate is as easy as one, two, three. And now that donation can become the cornerstone of a Catholic Charities USA donor-advised fund or DAF. Transform lives and earn a tax deduction by donating real estate and creating a CCUSA DAF. The CCUSA DAF is a dedicated charitable account that gives you a simple, flexible, tax-efficient way to support your favorite charities and you can use it to make an impact on the lives of people in need when you generously give your property you support the catholic charity's mission of helping those in need help themselves starting the process is easy begin by visiting catholiccharitiesusa.org that's catholiccharitiesusa.org to connect with its knowledgeable staff members they'll walk you through the process of opening a daft today catholiccharitiesusa.org please check it out. So, Charlie, we got the, the speaker thing settled. So now the House is, is back in business and has taken up this uh, Israel aid bill that there's a lot of support for, but there is contention between the parties, between the, the chambers and the, uh, the White House about how to go about it. Speaker Mike Johnson 
very in- insistent that we, we got to have some corresponding cuts. So the House has cut some of this IRS funding. Now the official scorekeeping says that actually loses money because the IRS funding is supposedly going to gain the government so much more revenue. But this passed the House and got some Democrats, I think maybe 15 Democrats or so. And it was just the Israel tranche. The White House and the Senate are interested in doing all this funding together, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and also some border money thrown in there because the the um, ideas become so pervasive on the right that you know we care about Ukraine more, Ukraine's borders more than our borders. So this is kind of a nod to that sentiment. What do you make of it? Well, I don't think there is a correct way of going about this. Legislatures are run by majorities, and the will of majorities alters over time and it doesn't have to be rational and if you were asking me as a representative if i were one would i vote for border funding ukraine aid and israel aid my answer would be yes as a result if those things were packaged together it wouldn't especially bother me because I would be happy to vote for all three separately. But that's not, I think, where the average member of the House of Representatives is. And so Johnson has a problem in that if he separates them out, maybe one of them doesn't go through. If he puts them together, maybe that kills the bell. So I think this is ultimately a practical question rather than a a principled question. The the age of unanimity on this sort of foreign policy matter is gone. So what do you do? I mean, I, I think it is entirely reasonable for... Republicans to say we're going to send money to Israel and we're going to take it from somewhere we don't like. I mean, I accept that the official scorecard promises that funding the IRS will bring in more money. I don't believe that for what it's worth. I think that's absolutely classic Washington promise making, which Republicans engage in too when they talk about tax cuts paying for themselves, which they never do. But There's nothing wrong with Johnson, who is the Speaker of the House and heads up the party that runs the House of Representatives, saying, here's where we're going to take the money from. Republicans don't want that extra money being spent on the IRS, irrespective of whether or not it adds uh, to the deficit, because they think that it's going to be used to harass people and increase the intrusion of the IRS in American life and potentially lead to yet another scandal where the IRS targets people that it dislikes. So, you know, I think this is just a practical question. And I think what we're probably going to see is some sort of compromise where all three get funded to some extent and no one is happy. Um, The one thing I will say that is more structural here rather than on the merits, is that as a rule, I quite like questions being considered separately from one another. I mean, if I had my druthers, that, that's how all questions in the house would be looked at. We, we would get away where possible from big must-pass bills where everything gets lumped in, and if you don't vote for it, then you're choosing to shut down schools or kill old people or cause a collapse in the economy. Uh, so, you know, it's, this is a this is a a good example of what happens when you live in a divided country, and, and the two parties have different prerogatives, and the people within those parties have different prerogatives. It's going to be quite difficult to get all this done, and, and maybe it should be. So, Maddie, what do you make of Speaker Johnson's performance on this one? Yeah, so obviously he was presented uh, certainly by the 
um, mainstream media at the at the time of, of his candidacy as a sort of a MAGA MAGA make. Um, he obviously had the support of Trump, um, and well, Trump's foreign policy is, I think, incredibly isolationist, and um, obviously he thinks he can he can do business with with Putin and other autocrats. But there was serious reason to be concerned, and also I think um, Johnson had voted against Ukraine aid in September. Uh, but it was, I, I think, a, a relief to a lot of people that he. In his first major interview after getting the speakership, he told Sean Hannity that, that Ukraine was one of his big priorities and obviously aligned himself with Mitch McConnell. Um, I think there is a very strong case to be made for allowing Israel and Ukraine to be debated separately. Charlie's made that case. The, the bigger challenge that Johnson faces from here on, though, is um, is addressing some of the criticisms uh within the, the GOP on on the GOP's position on Ukraine. So, you know, can he alleviate their concerns that, that Biden doesn't have a plan to end the war? Can he um, alleviate their concerns that, you know, that we there's not enough accountability in this financial aid? It's just basically paying uh, bureaucrats in Kiev and we, we don't know where the money's ending up. I mean, there's obviously ways to do that, pressuring the EU. I think they're already kind of picking up the slack a bit. Um, and having more oversight uh, to that money, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's he, he's doing good so far, but it, it is hard to see the the long term strategy remains to be seen. Seems almost unlikely that this will get through the Senate, so we'll have to see. MBD, the um, I, I I'm with Charlie. I'm happy to do this any any which way. I, I support all the. The funding, I think the border funding, though, will be basically meaningless unless there's some uh, guarantees of an enforcement, which isn't happening now. But clearly, uh, Hawks on, on my side of the Ukraine debate, they're, they're worried about the Ukraine part of this being stalled or somehow bottled up, even though, as Maddie points out, Mike Johnson has now kind of uh, changed his tune or done an about face and says he supports Ukraine funding. And Ukraine funding is just, it's not uh, as popular as it was. There is a, a great, I think it was by Gallup, breakdown of how Republican and independent opinion has turned against this conflict, against the funding, and they, they basically marched in lockstep. Republican opinion is more skeptical still than independent opinion, but the, 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 they, they've been uh, rising together. Yeah, I mean, I think the the idea of lumping it together, I think, was a, a, a you know play by Republican hawks to try to you know I think a lot of elected Republican hawks don't take Republican opinion on this very seriously. They don't they don't think that foreign policy opinion among the hoi polloi really matters that great a deal, and they you know I think a lot of them view their colleagues who do take that seriously as uh, craven rather than leaderly, right? Um, and so they want to put them to the test, which is, okay, here, I'll give you some things that you say you want, some money for the border, money for Israel, which is much more popular, um, and we'll see what you do. And it, But in a way, this is uh, providing cover for themselves as well, um, for their own vote, which, again, is not very popular. Um, you know, we've seen polling in the, you know, I, I became convinced in the summer in the New York Times Siena polls that um, there was 25% of the party that New York Times Siena identified as, you know, not open to Trump. And when you looked at that group on an issue basis, they were the Republicans that were overwhelmingly supportive of Ukraine. So it's a, it's a, it's like a strong identity issue for that that part of the party, whereas it's it's just not for the vast majority of of the party, um, and I don't see it getting any better because you know the arguments for the investment are getting more difficult, right? You're saying you know basically you're saying, well, we can't let Putin prevail. But the $100 billion we gave last year and all the diplomatic effort we got in to get South Korea to, to loan weapons and Poland to lend more weapons and so on led to a stalled counteroffensive. And now $60 billion next year is what we're doing to support them to total victory. 
just doesn't add up. Um, it doesn't make sense uh, anymore, uh, I think, on the face of it. And um, so by splitting it, you know, you would, you would allow those uh, Republicans to express their views and, and for those views to gain even more legitimacy and, and more currency in the, in the debate. So uh, we'll, we'll see if it actually happens. I think Johnson has calculated that he can let the, you know, he, he could do it either way. He could either group them together or separate them and let the Ukraine vote come to the floor anyway without risking his uh, speakership. So we're a little remiss here because there's another big story that's kind of overwhelmed by all the, the Gaza debate and its various permutations, which is this $40,000 check to Joe, Joe Biden, which is, which is the 10% for the, the big guy. It's just shocking. We'll get to that in more detail early next week, but let's at least glancingly hit on it in the exit question, Charlie, which goes to you first. Rate Joe Biden's current political strength from zero to 10. Zero post-Watergate revelations Richard Nixon uh, level strength. 10 would be George H.W. Bush in the immediate aftermath of the first Iraq war political strength, whereas Biden from zero to 10. The great irony of that, of course, is that Bush went on to lose and then Republicans <laughs> within a few years had the Reagan revolution. So it's not always indicative of future performance. I, I think that Biden is nowhere near George H.W. Bush, never has been. He's not where Nixon is yet, but that's in part because the press was interested in investigating Richard Nixon and finding out whether or not the rumors, and they were just rumors, it was a small story no one was looking into, were, were true. So, you know, here's, here's someone whose balance sheet has a lot of liabilities on it, I would put it that way. And I think next week we're going to talk about this story because it really is outrageous. And if he didn't have a D after his name and if his likely opponent weren't Donald Trump, it is all we would be hearing from uh, the press right about right now. Any number? The scale is what? One is... Zero, zero to ten. Nixon yeah, and then one, one is really low, yeah. Um, nine is very strong. Oh, is three? Three. Maddie? Um, yeah, so number I probably would put it a little higher than that, four or five. And the reason for that is I think in any other time, a scandal like this would be seriously damaging. But because um, Trump has his own scandals and because I think there's just sort of an, an avalanche of, of legal trouble that that can uh, that the, the press uh, who are who are more sympathetic to Biden kind of can obsess with and, and point to instead um, it's going to have less of an effect mm -hmm. yeah I mean there, there's just no doubt no no matter how bad things get for Biden he could still beat Trump easily MBD so we have a three and a four or a five. So, and the scale was between Nixon and... Yeah, zero is like as, as abysmal as you can get. Ten, ten is as strong as you can get. I only got one through nine, by the way, Michael, so careful how you use the numbers. <laughs> well, I thought you weren't going to do zero <laughs> or ten. I get, I get it. You get a, a bigger palette to work with than I have. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I... I I think Biden is cooked. I mean, I, I put him at a one. I mean, I, I honestly think it's completely dire for him. Um, generally, or because of this. I thought this was limited to this scandal. Yeah, ge yeah generally. Generally. Sorry, generally. Oh, generally. generally. So, yeah. Do you yeah, want to go back, Charlie? Generally, generally, go lower than three? No, because I think they're the same answer. Maddie, you're still, still at four, four or five? Uh, yes. All right. So it's a distinction without a difference, I guess. <laughs> MBD. But you're, you're a one. You think it's like yeah, five I mean, I mean, I think this is I think this is somewhere between, you know, Stalin coughing up blood and Stalin hemorrhaging and hitting the floor level. Like, he is, like, visibly <laughs> near death. Like, it's literally, like, hovering over him visibly with the scythe cocked and ready and then he is filled with scandal the economic numbers coming in today are not looking great unemployment ticking up um you know 
the world looks like on fire. His foreign policy seems dithering, uh, even if his rhetoric is is okay. Um, I I think he's totally cooked. I think any Republican will beat him. Trump will beat Including him. Including Trump? Including Trump, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was talking to, to, to someone yesterday who's a fairly smart political observer, and he's like, Trump's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. That, I mean, that's that's hard to believe, but I'm I'm uh, in between Charlie and Maddie. In which case, it's yeah, that could be true too. <laughs> Just shout at him from the podium. Biden will collapse, and that'll be it. Well, Trump's going to jail anyway, so he has nothing exactly. to lose, right? He'll, be shot. He'll do it on so, Fifth Avenue, uh, just to bring it full circle. <laughs> so I'm about a four. Incumbencies in his favor. The economy, you know, that that's really when the the the, the bottom drops out. You know, if if uh, the trajectory on the economy is is bad and we're we're in a recession. I mean, people still already think we're in a recession, but if we're in an honest to goodness re- recession next year but it's, it's very bad but the obviously the the key pillar of support here is that he's running against donald trump and uh trump leads him in the latest usa today suffolk poll on who's best to ha- handle foreign affairs the economy and immigration right i mean the, how weak can you be but bad things are going to happen to trump ne- next year you know he's certainly going to almost certainly going to be convicted of felonies, and we had this amazing poll, Quinnipiac, that had uh, RFK Jr. at 22% and a hypothetical three-way with Trump and Biden, which seems kind of high. But then I then I looked at other polls. There are other polls that have had him at 22% too. And in this poll, he was leading Trump and Biden among independents, which just goes to how I- extraordinarily irresponsible, just in terms of their own selfish interests, it is for for both parties to to be going with uh, with Trump. And Biden. So with that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. We really need people to pay a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit for the content they consume at National Review. So if you're not already a member, please consider allowing me to, if nothing else, guilt you into it and get you to join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus, but we do have plenty of free stuff for you, even if you do pay for uh, your your content that you're reading at NR. We have a free digital edition of the week section of the magazine. These are short, witty, incisive items on the news of the week. It's been the most popular section of the magazine for a very long time. We are now providing it digitally to people for free. You can go to nationalreview.com slash gettheweek, nationalreview.com slash gettheweek and sign up. If you're not familiar with the week, I guarantee if you sign up and start getting it, you won't regret it. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Madeline, you dressed up for Halloween. I did, yes. So I was in Omaha, Nebraska. I went to visit my sister and her family. And we all got dressed up. So I was uh, the Pink Panther. My husband was Inspector Clouseau. Uh, my brother-in-law was the moon. My sister was an alien. And their one-year-old was an astronaut. Wow. Um, he was He's a big one-year-old, mm-hmm. though. So he was, like, slightly b- bursting out of his costume, but still very cute. So, MBD, you've been spending time in the golf simulator? Well, <laughs> starting to, as the... Uh the weather turns away from from being out on the course. Um, I'm, my uh, my in laws and I are goading each other to keep up our game sharp over the uh, winter break, and I'm very lucky. I have a simulator around the corner. I can dip out for uh, a lunch break and get half an hour in of uh, practice. And and does um, it is it is it comparable enough to physical real golf? Well, I mean. It, Kind of. I mean, you're, except you're not walking around outside and enjoying the fresh air. Um, mm-hmm. You're basically like hitting but, off of a. But you're hitting off. It's of like being at a range, except for with, with the added element. Yeah, with the with but with a big screen in front of you, and but mm-hmm. then you get all the uh, the analysis and numbers on what your swing is doing and what um, you know where you're miss hitting it and what you could be doing better. Um, so actually, you get a little bit of. Uh, it's like going into a lab to see all your flaws um, as a golfer. So it's, it's kind of fun. Charlie? 
Well, I'm going to do my Halloween costume as well because we had the best Halloween here. I think we've had. I don't know why. And I do, do you have a do you have a Halloween parade or is it just just trick or treating? No, it's just trick or treating. But the streets in which we do our trick or treating look very much like a '90s movie depicting Halloween. As a child in England, my image of American Halloween is what I get here in North Florida, which is just great. Because although the yeah, English so, do Halloween, they don't do it quite this well do they do trick-or-treating yeah but it's all a little bit of a facsimile Mm -hmm. not as big a deal but i got to dress up as the teenage mutant ninja turtles well i was just one of them but my wife and two kids were the other so we were together all four of the teenage mutant ninja turtles awesome and we even ate pizza Did did you see the movie not the new movie, no. But I have shown my kids the 80s cartoon, which they love. So speaking of movies, I had the misfortune to see Killers of the Flower Moon, this Martin Scorsese epic. Everyone has to call it an epic just because it's really long, which really doesn't make an, a movie an epic. It just makes it really long. Three and a half hours. It's punishing length that easily could have been an hour and a half or two hours shorter it is plotting. It is depressing. Even though it's based on a true story, this David Grand best-selling book back in 2017 about the murders in the Osage Nation, this Native American tribe in Oklahoma that hit it rich with a bunch of oil and became per capita, you know, the richest people on earth, and a lot of uh, corruption and crime ensued it's still it's it's impossible to spend your your disbelief and buy into this movie at least it was for me almost all the characters are unlikable they're morons or the sociopath or these uh, low low at this low affect uh, native american woman is the main protagonist and she spends most of the movie uh, spoiler alert stop pause or fast forward if you're going to see it well i won't say it but it's just depressing and no good and i don't recommend seeing it i recommend very much Rich, very, if, very much recommend seeing something else yeah if you'll allow me my <clears throat> I, I find this really funny because my dad who is normally a very like temperate movie uh, critic sent me a text about this movie and he described it as magnificent great storytelling superb acting and an exploration of good and evil faith family and marriage honestly shakespearean <laughs> so, my dad liked it so too given the the contrast the contrast between yeah. b- between your opinion, which I obviously respect, and my dad's opinion, which I obviously respect, I will have to see this yeah, movie and decide for well, myself. I got almost the it. same text from my dad. <laughs> really? Yeah. Both of your dads my liked dad it. Liked it. Yeah. Well, my uh, our, our mutual friend Charlie John Carlo, the Cuban Missile Sopo, also agrees with me, and he's he's more of a cinephile than 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 I am. But he, he says it's among you know, the best of of Scorsese's films and i just don't see it at all so i'm gonna resort i'm gonna argue from authority on this one and say kyle <laughs> smith hates it oh, he does. And every every line that kyle wrote in his wall street journal review is i i, I think is correct but if you if you have to if you don't trust me and have to decide for yourselves okay you know fine go ahead with that it's time for our editor's picks mbd what's your pick uh my pick is dan piece the case for desantis over haley as the alternative to Trump. Um, I just think Dan kind of nails it uh, about uh, the, the broadness of DeSantis's appeal to the party, his political acumen as governor, and, um, you know, and just the way the stars lined up. I, it was so good that I, you know, wrote a version of this case myself for today. So, but check out Dan's. Maddie. I'm going to pick the week, the actual weekly week um, that we have now in our. It's, it's, it's my favorite part of the magazine as well, and I'm just glad uh, to have more of it, although writing it every week is obviously <laughs> a bit more work, yeah. but that's fine. Someone has to do it. Charlie. Mine isn't a piece. It's a, I suppose, a public service. NR has put up in his photos section all of the posters showing the photographs and details of the hostages being held by Hamas. And this is a good format to do this in because you can't pull it down, as we've seen in some cities. There are 203 of them, and each has in big letters at the top 
the word kidnapped and it really brings you to realize just the sheer scale of what happened on October 7th. So my pick is from the incomparable Sarah Schutte, her piece on the idiocy of renaming birds because they might be named after people who were racist or had views we no longer approve of. And this is very well-informed because Sarah is a, a birder in good standing. And what I especially liked about it, it it's mean. <laughs> it's, it's sarcastic. It's cutting, which just gets how, to how ridiculous this idea uh, is and how it worked up it got our friend Sarah. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the aforementioned Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, MBD. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks to Waterstone and Catholic Charities. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.